welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a lesson-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Masner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Grace. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, New Perspectives in the Treatment of Advanced Skin Cancer, Advanced Basal Cell and Squamous Cell Cancers. And this is part one of Living with Advanced Skin Cancer and Melanoma. Now, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program, as well as their support of many of our programs. Now, I would like to acknowledge that we have over 153 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities in different regions of the United States. And we also have a number of international participants from Austria, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, Malaysia, Poland, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And um, before we begin, before I introduce our first speaker, I would like to ask you all just a few questions. It'll take probably about two minutes. Um, for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll also be able to rate the questions. Um, and so I'm going to start with the first question. And we're actually doing this because we want to get a sense of what you know coming into the program. So we can, as we plan programs in 2022, we can best tailor the programs to meet your needs. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand new treatment approaches for advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the emerging role of targeted therapy in the treatment of advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand how to care for skin during cancer treatments for advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. <clears throat> I understand how to manage treatment side effects, discomfort and pain for advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. What is the highest rating and five the lowest rating? And then this will be the last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. What is the highest rating and five the lowest rating? So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It'll help us to better uh, tailor the programs to meet your needs. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Wong will be addressing overview of advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers, new treatment approaches, emerging role of targeted therapy, clinical trial updates, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatments, including sun and wind safety tips. It's my pleasure now to introduce my esteemed colleague, Dr. Michael Wong. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a distinct pleasure to and honor to be able to speak to you, uh, today's audience and it really reflects tremendous change in an area where uh, we for the longest time have had limited options. In addition, squamous cells and basal cell carcinomas are some of the most common skin cancers in the United States. Uh, and, and so there are two challenges here. One is the recognition and uh, the treatment of these very common skin cancers, uh, but the part which I want to spend a, uh, much of my focus on today are on the small subset of both basal cell and squamous cells, which become particularly uh, problematic, particularly aggressive, have learned to leave the skin and enter deeper into tissues, underlying uh, deeper tissues such as fascia and bone, to, uh, which have learned to migrate to regional lymph nodes and beyond. 
it's a very small subset, but one of the most problematic ones. And so, uh, and so, like I said to you, uh, we now have some uh, truly interesting and very useful options for our patients. So, what are these cells? And uh, so, what are these cancers? Where do they come from? So, the way we organize our thinking about cancer is to look at the anatomy of the skin, how the skin is put together, acknowledging that the cells that make up the skin. Uh, are different, uh, and one of them are called squamous cells, and these are cells which under a microscope look like scales, and they are the, thing, they are the cells that form the keratin, the actual skin itself overlying, and in fact, the cells will mature, will die off and form keratin, and, and, and this keratin is the stuff that sloughs off your skin and leaves a ring around a bathtub when you take a bath. It's, it's part of the normal part of the skin. Basal cells are found deeper within the skin layers at the interface between the superficial skin and the more deeper dermal part of the skin. And both of these can become cancerous. Henceforth, basal cells can become basal cell carcinomas, and squamous cells can become squamous cell carcinomas. So it has to do with the anatomy of the skin, how the skin is put together. Uh, you will hear about other types of skin cancers, uh, melanoma, for instance, and they come from melanocytes. These are cells in, in the skin which interdigitate uh, between squamous cells and are responsible for making melanin, which is the pigment of your skin. Other rare skin cancers include apocrine carcinomas, eccrine carcinomas, Merkel cell carcinomas, always come from uh, different anatomical elements. So just to put that in context for you. Basal cells and squamous cells make up the vast majority of skin cancers. Uh, and now, the thing that's, that is important about uh, these, these cells and the cancers that come from them is that they are both, basal cells and squamous cells, are, uh, uh, are, are sensitive to excessive sunlight. So all have sunlight as an instigator agent. And so when we talk about using uh, skin protection, sunscreen, being sun smart, which I'll focus on a little bit more at the end of this talk and and uh, and touch upon with Dr. Fleischman after me. Uh, this is and this is the reason for that because of its sort of association with uh, with carcinogenesis. So be careful about excessive sun exposure because of its ability to induce uh, a variety of skin cancers, the most common of which are basal cells and squamous cells. And that's exactly the reason why when you see a dermatologist, they tend to really focus on the sun-exposed areas of the body, the scalp, the head and neck area, the, the upper trunk, and so on and so forth, because those are the areas that have the most skin exposure. And likewise, uh, when you are paying attention to your own skin, those are the places to pay attention to. Now, for the longest time, uh, uh, you know, we have uh, really struggled with what to do with advanced disease, disease in which the, uh, a um, dermatologists may not be able to handle because of the aggressive nature of the tumor or because it's gotten big enough. Which, and if you uh, are listening very closely, with, uh, what you're also hearing is that the vast majority of these issues, these basal cell and squamous cells, are easily handled by dermatologists uh, because they're small, they're superficial. And uh, what I'm going to focus on are the ones that are difficult to handle in that way because of their, of their biology and how they've grown or the fact that they've managed to grow in a difficult place, which is cosmetically uh, sensitive. And what do we do with those situations? Well, there, the, the standard approach has always been to try to resect these, to, re, to remove them surgically. And if you look at the escalation of that, you can have uh, things done in the office by uh, dermatologists. You can have procedures done by, by what's called Mohs surgeons. Mohs is M-O-H-S, and Mohs is a procedure in which uh, uh, there's a systematic way of removing in radio fashion from in to out the sort of superficial tumors, which is associated also with the way of, of, uh, of, of controlling the margins of resection to assure that you have complete resection. And you can even escalate that to head and neck surgeons, which do a more extensive resection. And from that point, they can also bring in plastic surgeons, bone surgeons, neurosurgeons, whatever you need to, to get the job done removing these lesions. In the more advanced cases, 
uh, you can you get the sense that you need to work as teams, and that's exactly right. Uh, major centers like ourselves for advanced skin cancers, such as one I see, uh, which are referred to me by dermatologists or other surgeons, we work in teams, and you'll see why in a second. Uh, uh, and, uh, and the reason for that, because we are trying to get that patient to what we call cancer zero, a situation which the cancer is removed completely and forever. So that's the goal. So what are the new treatment approaches uh, coming from here? Well, let's talk about the past to know where we were before. Uh, for squamous cell carcinoma, which, which, which defy surgical removal, uh, or which are really involving deep structures, or which have become metastatic, meaning have gone to more than one place in the body, a local regional approach such as uh, resection or surgery doesn't make sense because it will not get you to cancer zero, like I said before. The medicines that we used, um, uh, uh, let's just say in the old days, if you wish, uh, really are cytotoxic agents. And they start with topical cytotoxic agents. Cytotoxic means medicines that, that kill growing cells such as cancers. Uh, they can be topical, applied as creams, uh, and in more advanced cases, given by intravenous. And sometimes you will use more than one drug called combination cytotoxic therapy. Uh, likewise, for basal cell carcinoma, uh, uh, in the advanced setting, like, uh, like which I described for squamous cell, again, which defy resection for a variety of reasons, you will see that, uh, that these are not cancers that respond very well to chemotherapy. They just don't, they don't grow that fast. And so chemo does not, which attacks growing cells, doesn't have the same sort of efficacy in these cancers. And one of the big changes that occurred almost a decade ago plus now is recognition that basal cell carcinomas, for the most part, are uh, driven by uh, changes in genes and proteins inside the cancer. So there are proteins and genes which are mutated and result in growth. And these um, uh, genes and, 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 and proteins uh, follow a certain pathway of activation, and that pathway is called hedgehog. Now, to, to, to give you a very quick history lesson, the reason why it's called hedgehog is because in the old days when they discovered these genes, the scientists were using fruit flies and other organisms to look to understand gene mutations. And in those flies that had um, a notching of the wings like, uh, like the, the sonic hedgehog character uh, with the serrated appearance, uh, that this was associated with a certain gene. And it named that gene hedgehog, and that's how it came to be. It turns out that the hedgehog pathway is abnormal in the majority of basal cell carcinomas, and uh, uh, multiple clinical trials uh, now completed uh, 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 prove that by stopping down, by inhibiting the hedgehog pathway, which is aberrantly turned on in basal cell carcinoma, you can achieve uh, regression of uh, the majority of basal cell carcinomas and sustain that regression. So, so these hedgehog inhibitors, as they're called, are pills. And that has been the foundation of treating basal cell carcinoma now, advanced basal cell carcinoma now, for almost a decade plus. So that is sort of the, the state of the art um, until recently. So what has happened recently? We have come to recognize that both basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma uh, are cancers that uh, are able to establish themselves in, in our patients' bodies by, uh, by masking themselves from uh, the host's immune system. And by doing so, our immune systems cannot see the, uh, the cancers. They are invisible to them. So sometimes I explain to my patients, they use a, me a, a mechanism to clo cloak themselves akin to that Harry Potter cloak of invisibility. You're there, but you can't be seen. And uh, by using medicines uh, called immunotherapy, we were able to stimulate the body's immune system and basically expose the cancers for what they are, which are immunologically uh, sensitive and immunologically different from the body. I'm going to step back and give you a, a two-minute lesson, a 90-second lesson on immunity. 
it, why is that? Because it's very important, and immunotherapy has become one of the forefronts of immune of sort of cancer therapies today. It has really dominated the scene, and has really c uh, come forward now to become the major way in which you treat cancer, including skin cancer. And so, uh, when I talk to my patients about immunity, I, I, I tell them that we all have it. This is something we're born with, and it's an immune system. It's not one thing, not one organ. It is your spleen, your liver, your lymph nodes, your thymus gland, your bone marrow. It is a conglomeration of all these systems, which together uh, define what belongs to us and what not, does not belong to us. So, if, if something foreign got into your body, like bacteria, like a parasite, like a virus, your body's immune system will mount a defense against it. Of course, it has to be educated. It has to be in a way that your body can, can fight uh, against the organism. And uh, you will understand now during this time of COVID, we've, there's a lot of attention to vaccines and immunizations because of the fact that our body cannot recognize the COVID vaccine. So likewise, in uh, oncology, we have recognized that basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinomas are immunologically uh, 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 so immunologically masked from the body. And if we could unmask it, uh, your body would uh, uh, be able to recognize and attack the cancer. And that's the entire foundation of immunotherapy. These are medicines that are given intravenously. There are, there are specific indications and there were specific situations to do it. But in general, situations in which the frontline therapy hasn't worked or the tumor is so advanced that it defies surgery or, uh, or that the tumor has gone beyond the regional site and has gone to other parts of the body. Those are situations in which uh, uh, immunotherapy uh, has efficacy. And so th this has been the new change that we have seen in the treatment of these cancers. Uh, uh, and in the case of both squamous cell and basal cell carcinomas, they have revolutionized our way of thinking. Now, we are gonna talk about um, uh, side effects and so on and so forth very quickly and how to manage them. But a quick word of how we got here from there. These are all the consequences of clinical trials. And whenever I have patients in front of me I, and we talk about clinical trials, I tell them that clinical trials is a systematic way which I'm able to use new drugs in patients. We cannot, in oncology, just open up the cupboard and say, use this. Uh, uh, why? Because, uh, because the important thing is not just to use it, but to understand if it causes harm, to understand uh, how it is efficacious, and most importantly, to understand the risk and benefits of therapy. And, uh, and because of that, we do it in a very systematic way in which all patients on a trial are treated exactly the same way so at some point we can say to, to, um, to the medical community at large that this is a therapy that's working or not working or, and also you know, what the potential downsides are and what the potential side effects. So when, you, when we list these things out on the side of a box or a carton or you hear it on a commercial when they list all the side effects, that comes from clinical trial work. So this is why I want to mention it here because uh, the, the whole uh, ability to use immunotherapy in squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinomas come directly as a consequence of well-done clinical trials that have reported out over the past three to five years. So this is our recent development, and we continue to improve, and I'll talk more about what, that, uh, what, what we're doing presently to move the field forward. I want to spend a few seconds talking about uh, side effects because for every situation which we have efficacy, I teach a young doctors this, the flip side of efficacy is toxicity. So you almost have to know what you're dealing with. And I also remind uh, everyone that I come in contact with uh, as a teacher that there's no such thing as a drug with 0% uh, uh, side effects and 100% efficacy. So you must understand the context. The details of these are very individualized. And so um, these are things you should have a discussion with your personal physician. But in general, it goes like this. When we use immune therapy, um, uh, these are usually in a context of uh, people with advanced disease. Um, and so uh, managing the side effects of disease themselves is important because you want to start from the best possible situation. I always remind 
my patients that these immunotherapy medicines, great as they are, with the potential of cure, uh, do not work directly on the cancer. Now, you heard that right. They don't work on the cancer directly. However, they work by going to that individual, that patient, and turning on their immune system to attack the cancer. Say so they rely on the host to make it happen. Therefore, one of the first things we do as physicians is to optimize the host, make that patient's body as good as possible, as strong as possible, take care of all the things that can get in the way of successful immunotherapy. Uh, and so therefore, you pave the way to success by dealing with these things. All the side effects of immunotherapy come from your immune system, the patient's immune system, uh, behaving in aberrant ways against themselves. So it's a bit like fighting against a cancer, but at the same time fighting against yourself. There's a very good reason why, uh, for the most part, our immune systems are natively turned off, O-F-F, off. They're not turned on because they exert a, 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 a cost to the system. You have to fight the cancer. So fatigue, tiredness, muscle aches and pains, having the sense that you have an inf a low-grade infection, these are things that can happen, and you feel that way because your body's turned on, your body's immune system's turned on. The more serious side effects have to do with your immune the body's immune system attacking the body's own tissues. I won't go into huge detail because this is a very important discussion that the patient should have with their physician. But the most important thing is to realize that these side effects are protein. They're difficult to detect sometimes because any tissue can be affected. The effects can be subtle. So the critical part of uh, successful immunotherapy has to do with um, uh, a very uh, close working relationship between the healthcare team and that individual patient. Dr. Fleischman will speak more about uh, managing that relationship, but uh, the crux of it is good communication, knowing how to get hold of people where, uh, and how to get hold of people uh, with your questions, uh, uh, be they during the day or middle of a, of a weekend evening. So uh, that's an important thing to, to really be able to figure out with your healthcare provider. I want to talk a little bit about the future. Where do we go from here? We've had tremendous success with this, and the recognition that the that basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinomas are immunologically sensitive cancers have now opened the door to a host of strategies. So now we have uh, uh, clinical trials testing uh, uh, direct injection of immunotherapies into the tumors. We now have uh, clinical trials testing cancer vaccines, in which we are trying to vaccinate people against the cancer. Uh, we now have situations which we're using cellular therapy, which are using your body's immune cells, which are extracted out of your body, manipulated to fight the cancer, and put back into that same person's body. That's called cellular therapy. Very exciting. There, of course, uh, a, a ever-growing understanding of, about the molecules and mutations that are important in making benign cells become cancerous. We call them driver mutations because they drive the cells to, to cancer. And now we, we have an entire strategy for targeting those critical pathways, like the hedgehog pathway I spoke to you about in basal cell. There are other pathways involved, and there's, there's a, there are big discovery programs in which we are trying to discover and manipulate these very pathways. So lots of things, exciting things happening. I'm going to just end by saying this, this is an area of great opportunity and hope. I also want to point out that I've spoken to you about the rare things. Uh, the vast majority of basal cells and squamous cells are easily handled by dermatologists. But in those situations in which the, the cancers have become uh, difficult to, to resect, difficult to handle, have be, become metastatic, we now have uh, tremendous hope, opportunity, and chance for cure, even in these very difficult situations. I'll end here, and I thank you for your attention, and I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to spend this time with you, and it's an honor and privilege to do so. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dr. Wong. It's an honor and privilege for us to have you speaking on this program, and this very wonderful introduction to this whole, more than an introduction, you cover the, so much of this topic, and I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A, um, and it's, uh, I think, also what you've let everyone know about how important immunotherapy is now um, for the treatment of skin cancers and many cancers. So that's really something everyone should be very much aware of as well. Thank you. 
and our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. And Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to all the folks who have joined into this call, both uh, in the United States and internationally. This is a quite important topic about uh, skin cancers. Sometimes people feel that skin cancers don't uh, get as much attention as other cancers, but they're very important. There are new treatments that are available and uh, communicating with your healthcare team um, during uh, the initial consult and then during treatment is essential. Uh, because some skin is visible to the public, it's not covered up by clothing, quality of life concerns are really important during um, evaluation and treatment of skin cancers, especially if you have any sorts of symptoms like itching or burning or a rash, um, those kinds of uh, symptoms need to be uh, clarified with your provider's team, with your oncology team, so that they can pay some attention to it. Um, it's very, very important that you communicate these symptoms as well as any others that you may be concerned about. Um, e even um, if you're having pain, um, either before or after treatment, it's important to communicate that to your, your oncology team. So we're talking today about the role of telehealth and telemedicine visits, which have become um, much more prominent since the COVID-19 pandemic has entered our, um, our world. Um, telehealth before COVID-19 happened, but often, not so often, um, very rarely in fact. And now we're able to uh, to do uh, initial consult consultation visits or follow-up visits on either a landline telephone, a voice-only telephone, or on a voice-only cell phone, or even smartphones or tablets or computers where there can be both audio and video access. So these um, are, are new to most of us providers. They're new to most patients, but have been developed over the last number of months so that everybody is a bit more comfortable with it. There is a, a good upside to them in that if um, uh, somebody who's getting an initial consult or a follow-up visit wanted to include a family member or friends uh, to either take notes or help ask questions, and that person lived in another city or another state or another country, they would normally have to travel to where the patient and the provider were to participate in the call. And now with telehealth uh, and a good internet connection, they can pretty much be anywhere. Um, and that's been a big help um, despite all of the inconveniences and suffering that people have had through COVID-19. So um, if you're going to have a telehealth call, there are a number of things to keep in mind. One is what type it will be, whether it will be audio only or it'll combine video. And um, if you have the right type of device at home, either a smart telephone that receives video and audio or a tablet or um, a computer. The computer needs to have a microphone and speakers, as well as a camera to do a video call. Many phones have that built in, but not every phone. So having the right equipment is important. Making sure that the equipment is charged is also very important. If it's going to be your first telehealth visit, whether it's a, either an initial consultation or a follow-up visit, it's best to have a practice session. So um, communicate with your provider's office uh, a day or two before it's scheduled and find out exactly what you need to do, who's going to call whom, if you have to go onto a certain website, how to connect, practice doing that so that the day of the call, it'll be seamless and you can focus on the importance of the visit rather than the technology at hand. Um, it, it, it goes without saying that for uh, something like this, when you're not in the office, please um, have a quiet place to be in. Um, that can be helpful. 
also um, decent lighting um, and a, again a power outlet so that your device can be plugged in. Uh, if you're using an internet connection over a Wi-Fi system, make sure that you're in a part of the house or you're in a place where the Wi-Fi connection is strong. Or if you're using a telephone or a device without um, Wi-Fi nearby, that your cell um, reception is strong so that you can uh, participate in the call and the technology can support that. The other thing to do is to really formulate a list of questions in advance. That's not much different from going into a regular office visit in person, but maybe even more important uh, because you're on a remote visit. So having questions answered is often um, the hallmark of a really successful visit, whether it's for an initial consultation or for follow-up. So um, you and if somebody is going to be on the call with you or someone in your family who can help you crystallize exactly what those issues are going to be, write them down so that you have um, a sheet of paper in front of you. Um, so if you have a practice session, you know how to work the technology and all the other conditions are met, the call will go as well as possible. Uh, generally, uh, the calls do happen on time, but like office visits, sometimes they can be delayed um, and the provider's office should actually be contacting you. If not, you may need to contact them if the call doesn't happen at the specified time. And be mindful that if for remote providers, they may be in a different time zone. Uh, so be careful to align your watch with their time zone if that will affect uh, the call that you have. So um, these are sort of general rules for um, telehealth telemedicine visits, and after getting over the um, uh, initial um, unfamiliarity, they can be very, very helpful. Another um, thing that's happened in this high technological age really involves um, uh, the platforms or the systems where many of these telehealth calls occur, and some of those are not just video audio systems, but actually you can access parts of your medical record, uh, which could include uh, blood test results, results from imaging, x-rays, CAT scans, PET scan reports, pathology reports, as well as uh, progress notes, uh, either a consultation note or, or follow-up note from the telehealth visit or even from an in-person visit that you've had in the past. Many of these get loaded into the um, medical record system and uh, you ha are, are able to ex um, uh, look at them and read them, uh, sometimes even have the ability to print them out. This has been a huge help to many, many people who um, would like to read their records, would learn more from their records, but it's also brought a whole host of problems. Uh, many of these reports are written with drop-down menus, which means that it's not just a type report, but there are certain phrases that um, us providers can actually choose from when writing up the report after the visit is over. Some of those are in medical jargon, not understandable to many people. Some of us know it, but not everybody. Some of it are abbreviations. I'll tell you, just a few weeks ago, um, I've heard of a terrible situation where um, one of the medical record systems, you know, instead of saying follow-up, uh, uh, the abbreviation was F slash U, and patients were quite upset that that was something that was terribly unpleasant in their records. Um, there are a number of sort of catchphrases that um, can be misunderstood, and since most of us don't have training in medical terminology, um, don't assume that you know what an abbreviation or a word means. Please ask for help. Um, I believe that um, it was always thought that these records would be available uh, with someone who'd be able to clarify them uh, for you. Um, and because you can look at um, lab results or pathology reports or x-ray reports, especially going through cancer treatment, um, some of the things may seem abnormal, and they're supposed to be that way during treatment. Um, it's very important to have somebody help you interpret these reports in the context of you 
uh, illness that you have, um, any other uh, conditions that you have at the same time. So a common example of this would be someone who um, has diabetes, high levels of blood sugar, and is getting uh, one of the anti-nausea medicines that can routinely increase their blood sugars temporarily. Um, or even somebody without diabetes who's taking the same medicine that can increase their blood sugars temporarily. And um, reading just the lab uh, report, somebody may think that their diabetes has gotten worse all of a sudden or that they've never been diabetic and all of a sudden they had very high blood sugars. Please don't assume anything along those lines and ask for help from your provider's office to help interpret what you see. So although this has been very helpful to lots of us, both as providers and patients, please be aware that what you're reading is almost in a foreign language and you need to um, have it clarified by someone who speaks that language and who knows you and can put all of the information in context. So we're in this new age of telehealth, telemedicine, open notes or um, uh, access to parts or all of our medical records. And although it comes with some advantages, it also comes with new problems that we're all grappling with and learning how to deal with. I hope this has been helpful. And I, now I will turn it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding and just really wonderful um, coverage of really the importance of communicating with the healthcare team, using telehealth effectively, and really using that technology um, to the best um, possible way. So thank you so much. Very wonderful presentation. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Now, Cancer Care is a national organization. So we provide support services to people all over the United States, and those services are provided by trained master's level oncology social workers. So when you, you can contact us by calling our 800 number, our HOPE line, at 813-4673. Um, and you will, the person picking up the phone will be an oncology social worker. Usually people, when they call the HOPE line, have a specific question or concern that they're wanting help with right away. And then um, when that's addressed, we also do go over with them all the other services that Cancer Care provides because sometimes people don't know all the other services they could access. So what are those services? Um, so the services include, first of all, of course, calling the HOPE line, getting immediate support with a concern you have. Our HOPE line runs um, Eastern Time business hours from Monday through Friday. Um, and um, you also, um, in addition to that, we do provide um, practical financial and co-payment assistance. What that means is we will assist you with any practical resources that you might need, but we also do provide financial assistance for transportation, um, you know, um, pain medication, childcare, home care, things like that will help you with that. And we also do assist um, with co-payment assistance, which are programs that many organizations have. We are not the only one. But our co-payment assistance helps to pay for your chemotherapy treatments. And those are much more larger grants, and they can make a very big difference for people um, in terms of their access to um, what care they need, and also um, in terms of giving you um, some space to look for other resources as well. You also can utilize many copay assistance programs. You don't have to use just one. And you don't have to use just one support organization either. Um, in this instance, sometimes more is better to get as much help as possible. You also are able to um, access our online support groups. Now, a lot of people like those groups because, again, we are all working remotely and to some extent, and you're in different parts of the country. So it's un unrealistic to have you meet in a specific place. So you meet online. And the groups are for people of all different ages um, for both older adults, younger adults, middle-aged adults, um, caregivers, partners, and then on specific types of cancers, like we do an online support group for people with, um, with skin cancers, with advanced skin cancers, or with melanoma. So we do offer many different types of support groups on many, pretty much all the different types of cancers that exist. We also have something called um, 
wellness circles, which are really um, smaller groups in which people get together and talk about some of the concerns that they may have in general in coping with cancer. And um, in addition to that, we do these workshops. And we also, about 75 per year, and we also um, offer publications from our website. Now, anything that we've mentioned during this program today, um, website, a Hopeline number, any other resource that comes up during the program or that we think of during the program, we will offer to you when you get, you'll get a survey monkey um, tomorrow um, about this program. It's an evaluation of the program, but also it will include um, any of the resources um, telephone numbers and websites that would be useful to you to have. Um, so I hope that helps to give you a thumbnail sketch of many of the services that we offer, and um, I hope you'll take advantage of them. Um, and we will also provide other resources as well for other organizations that could be of help to you as well. And now before we go on to the Q&A, I do have a few questions I'd like to ask that, that you're all, uh, that I want to ask all of you, first of all. Um, and so I'm going to start with our um, first question. And um, there's about five of these questions. And again, these questions are for those of you who are, li who are um, live streaming the program. You'll be able to see the questions and rate the question. So as a result of what I learned in this program, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of new treatment approaches for advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the emerging role of targeted therapy for the treatment of advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to use recommendations from the healthcare team for caring for skin during cancer treatments and sun and wind safety tips for advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to use the speaker's of how to use the suggestions from the healthcare team to prevent and manage treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain for advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials for advanced skin cancers, including basal cell and squamous cell cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And I very much want to thank all of you for participating in these questions. It really um, will help us to better plan programs that best meet your needs. And now I'm going to ask Grace to bring all of our speakers on board and want to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, so that, um, and Grace will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit the questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have some questions from our online participants, actually, um, actually quite a few. So we'll start with um, Dr. Wong. Um, this, um, are there particulars, are there particular sunscreens you recommend? I've heard that some contain carcinogenic agents. Wondering what research says about this topic. Thank you, Dr. Bessner. That's a <clears throat> that's a great question, and uh, I'll, uh, I want I'm hesitating a bit because I'll tell you what I'd say to my own patients, and even to my own family members. And remember, my patients that I see. Um, uh, have active skin cancer. I'm an oncologist, so they all have active skin cancer. And uh, we can sit here and debate a long time about uh, this sunscreen or that sunscreen, and, and there's a lot of um, uh, sort of statements going around, not all which are scientifically proven. But honestly, the thing that's most important is to have two things. I say sun smartness and barrier protection. So this is exactly what I tell my own patients. I said, there's nothing beats 
physical barrier between yourself and the sun. So you can put as whatever sunscreen you wish on whatever part of your body, but what are you really doing is that you're, you're maybe giving yourself an extra 40 minutes of time, 30 to 40 minutes of time in the sun before things really get start getting toasty. That's assuming you don't swim or sweat. And for us who are doing outdoor activities, that's a blink of an eye. So uh, nothing beats barrier protection. If we try to learn from folks that live in desert climes, they they really bypass the sunscreen business and go right to barrier. Barrier is clothing, is a hat, is uh, a, a, a covering for your face and your and a covering for your hands and so on and so forth. Um, those provide the best protection against solar exposure, period. So I uh, give you an example from my own, my own personal uh, activities. I just came back from a hiking vacation. I had a, uh, you know, a high-weave, uh, polyester-type, breathable, uh, long-sleeve uh, um, garment that, that covered my arms. I wore gloves. And uh, and I had a, um, a a thin hoodie that came with the, that and also covered my nose. And obviously I'm hiking in Texas, Texas in the high desert, so this is not uh, lying by the pool and sort of being able to apply sunscreen. We're hiking in the in the backcountry, uh, and on that had a hat on as well and sunglasses. And uh, and the reason why I did this is because I've done less than this and gotten sunburned. And here I am as a skin cancer doctor coming back to clinic with raccoon eyes from the sun exposure and uh, sunburned hands and wrists. So um, I'm not sidestepping the question, but I'm just trying to put things in perspective. Sun smartness is also trying to understand when you're doing your activities. I say to my patients, do you really have to wash your car with your shirt off at noon? My patients who are listening will probably laugh because that's the exact example I use. I mean, but do you, right? Do you really need to go play golf at high noon uh, uh, when you could have gone earlier in a day or later in a day when the sun is lower in the horizon? So these are things to think of. Uh, we are coming to a new understanding of sun exposure. I am of the generation where you put that stuff on your body to get the tan, right? This is the, you know, we... We, my generation, uh, went out and laid out in the sun, put the cocoa butter on or the, or the babe oil on because you wanted that that really beautiful bronze skinning. And the reality is we now have come to understand, just as when I grew up, everyone around me smoked, uh, we now come to understand from a, from a personal and public health concern that these are things that uh, uh, you have to learn how to do in moderation and learn how to to protect yourself against excessive exposure to these things. Uh, so um, that's that's the answer I give to my patients. That's uh, the way I live my life, and that's also the, the answer I give to my own family. Sounds terrific. That's a, I hope everyone takes that to heart and really practices that. It's a fantastic example. Thank you. Lots of examples for people to follow. Thank you. And the next question is, I took a photo of a milia in my eyelid area and sent it to my long-time dermatology surgeon um, who said it may or may not be a basal cell cancer. So I have had basal cell cancer, um, BCCNS. Um, She said she will biopsy it next time I come in in a few months. In the meantime, is there anything that can be done to get rid of a milia around the eye in hopes it is not basal cell cancer-related. Yeah, so um, I I think uh, I always say, you know, armchair diagnoses give you armchair quality type of answers. And obviously this dermatologist is a very visual thing, so I really cannot reply specifically for two reasons. Number one, you know, the, 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 the... image itself and its association with underlying structure, whether or not there are blood vessels involved, how it's, uh, it's, it's associated with skin, whether you see some degree of fibrosis, some puckering. All these are fine details to the practice eye, which gives us a sense of whether we should just sit on our hands or we should biopsy. And obviously, your doctor thought there's enough here to biopsy. 
Number two is the fact that uh, my personal philosophy is that any changing skin lesion in, an, in a person over the age of 21 deserves, uh, or even before, if it's suspicious enough, but my point is post-puberty, very few things on an adult human body changes. And so you have these things that come and persist and become symptomatic. You have some symptoms. That, that is, you just need to have attention to that. So let me segue to the next thing, which will, I think, very important is how, is how to take pictures of these lesions. Because pigmentation and color are very important, I'll tell folks uh, that, uh, and we have these great cell phones. I just, you folks heard I was on a holiday, and I had a really fancy doodah camera, and I got to tell you, the person who had the iPhone had some incredible pictures. Uh, so these cameras are getting better and better and better. And, and so the detail you can get are important. So what you've done here is fantastic. For us, the, as, a, as physicians, change is the important thing, right? And that includes growth. Change, uh, growth is a, is a change in size over time. So having uh, a, a good photo of it over uh, a period of time, very important. And number one. Number two is having consistent light source. So our best consistent light source is the sun. So pick a day. Uh, I tell folks, you know, go by the window, uh, which you have good sunlight, and not direct. You want that sun blasting into your skin. But, you know, we have sunlight because the wavelength of light, the mixture of oranges and blues and reds and the light spectrum are consistent. And take that picture, right, and do that over the same at the same place over time. Obviously, you know, overcast day versus sunny day, uh, you want to just pick the same sort of situation. But where I'm trying to get to is we are looking for change in size, in characteristic, and pigmentation over time. So to make our jobs easier to help you, uh, a little thoughtfulness of how you do this is important. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope this will be helpful to our, um, I'm sure it will be helpful to our uh, participant. Um, Another question, um, are there any trials, research, on changing the P1 mutation for BCCNS Gorlin syndrome? Any research trials for BCCNS Gorlin syndrome that does not use the hedgehog canal? All right, so this is a very specific question. So let me provide a little context. So Gorlin syndrome is a hereditary uh, condition in which there is abnormal activation of the hedgehog pathway, usually through a protein called patch one. All right, so that's a lot more detail than most people need, but the sense you should get is that this is not everyone. This is a very specific situation. And, and so, and the answer is yes. Uh, there's a lot of work being done around this sort of whole pathway, whether there are other ancillary pathways uh, that uh, may promote either the hedgehog pathway uh, through its interaction uh, along any of the molecules in that pathway or what we call bypass pathways. In other, in other words, you have used the hedgehog inhibitors and somehow the bodies or the tumor cells have gotten around it. Um, and for people who are aficionados of this, you know, there are things called upstream and downstream inhibitors, upstreaming things that are above, like before the hedgehog pathway would drive it, and downstream means things that happen after hedgehog. And so there's a lot of attention to both sides of that equation. There is nothing right now, to my knowledge, and this is a small field, so there are folks that are expert, expert in this, too, which I'm not. Uh, although I do have hedge, uh, Gorlin patients in my practice, there are folks that dedicate their entire clinic to this. To my knowledge, there isn't yet a, uh, uh, a really firm um, and dominant idea that's emanate, that's come from all this work. Uh, but there is stuff happening in this field right now. I should point out that some folks uh, uh, have a need for other medicines, not so much because of the fact that um, uh, their tumors are not responding to the hedgehog inhibitors, but also because you know not everyone can tolerate these hedgehog inhibitors. People can have reactions to it. People can have abnormal sort of situations with the drugs. So it is uh, a situation in which we are looking for both bypass pathways and other inhibitors of the hedgehog pathways. Excellent. Thank you. And that was a question from one of our participants. And I've had surgery for my um, I've had surgery on my leg for squamous cell cancer. The scar is very painful. 
and it hurts to touch it. What can I do to control the pain besides applying lotion? Are there pain relievers that help? Sure. This is a, a question which I uh, will encourage you to reach back to your surgeon. Uh, and why? Because um, we have areas of the body which are more sensitive than other areas for pain. For instance, the tip of our fingers, our lips, right, uh, are areas that have a tremendous amount of pain fibers, whereas things in the trunk, not so much. And, and so location matters, right? Uh, you, almost, you also want to uh, uh, engage with the person who did the operation because there are things you want to make sure there's not something at the wound site that's causing, that's causing irritation. Despite our best efforts, some people are allergic to the sutures used in, 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 uh, in the operation. It's not common, uh, but we've heard of it. So, again, uh, assessment along those lines are important. And as your skin heals together, as your skin comes together to heal that wound from the operation, almost like a zipper coming together, uh, things that are caught, caught in the teeth of that zipper or abnormal folding in that area can sometimes cause its own trouble. And so uh, these are things diagnosed by direct physical examination. Um, so there are things that are local to the site, and uh, there are also medicines that can work. Uh, you, I would rank medicine second on that list after careful examination of the surgical site itself. So um, this is not a one-size-fits-all answer, as you can tell, but something that requires you to uh, – and you're obviously very troubled by this. So, you know, sometimes uh, – and that's not everyone, but for you, the individual person, uh, that's someone who you reach back to the surgeon and you have to impress upon them that, uh, that this is very troublesome, right, and that this ref reflects probably a – process which is not expected or normal. Uh, so that's the sort of um, uh, you know, message that you should portray to your healthcare providers and, and have them have a reevaluation of that site. Excellent. And um, there are two questions that are pretty much the same, so I'll just read one of them. What are the risk factors for adverse reactions to possible toxicity or discomfort and pain from treatments? Um, it depends on the treatment, obviously. Um, the, so if you look at things like uh, hedgehog inhibitors, which are oral agents in BCC, uh, people react differently to it, and, uh, and there are no sort of risk factors that you can point to and say, you know, this person is going to have more of this, this person is going to have more of that. Um, immunotherapy is its own little different category. And one of the things that we are particularly careful about in immunotherapy is someone who comes to us with a pre-existing autoimmune condition uh, or people with a strong family history of the same thing. Uh, why? Because um, immune therapy, by definition, you're using it to, to turn on the immune system, to make it more robust, to be activated. And in those people in which they already come with an activation of the immune system in a pathological way. In other words, their immune system's already acting against them. What are examples of that? Uh, rheumatologic issues like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, um, inflammatory bowel disease. You already have an autoimmune situation. We tread extremely carefully in those situations. Those are, uh, those are hot button risk factors. And so assessment of that risk assessment of the, uh, of, or the risk of reactivation or worsening of those things is part of the assessment of the, of the, of the individual patient for immune therapy. Well, I want to thank um, our speakers. I want to thank um, Dr. Um, Wong for addressing so many of these questions um, and so beautifully, really. Um, and I want to thank our participants for act, asking such terrific questions as well. This has been an amazing call. We've done this program before, but I must say the questions and the responses to them have been much more uh, substantive than they've ever been before. And we actually have many more questions in queue. So I do want to um, address all of you who have either asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or who are thinking of questions you'd like to ask. So we always recommend, and I think Dr. Wong has said that throughout, is that of course, go back to your treating healthcare team with what you've learned today. Take that back to your treating healthcare team and um, 
and see how that applies to your specific situations. They have access to your records. They know the most about you. And they know specifically what, you know, can really be of help to you. That's really important um, in terms of um, your questions that you may have. So even if you've asked a question or have a question that you were like hoping to ask or a question yet to ask, again, um, bring it to your healthcare team. And your healthcare team is consisting of many people. Of course, your physician. It also includes an oncology nurse, oncology social workers, patient navigator, financial um, navigators. So a lot of different people on that team. And whatever your question or concern is, there's someone on your team who can probably help you with it. In addition to contacting Cancer Care, and we'll also be giving you a number of other resources as well in terms of resources that um, exist in the, um, you know, in the, in the uh, other nonprofit organizations that we think could be of help to you as well. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with uh, cancer. I want you to know that you're part of a community of support and we are here to help you. Um, and so, although it's tempting and very, and very normal to feel alone at times, we want you to know that you are simply a phone call or mouse clip away from getting um, help from uh, with your concerns, either from your healthcare team or from other organizations that are credible. We'll give you that listing of credible organizations to contact for any questions or concerns that you may have. Also, um, and I think Dr. Wong mentioned this, be sure you know when um, who's available for you to call after hours, like evenings, weekends, holidays, that's really important so you have that um, someone to call. Always seems that things crop up at that time. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you, doctors. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.